Section 10 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 Irish Affairs, Part 1. When news of Becket's murder reached Henry at Argentin on the 1st of January, 1171, he was terribly perturbed and retiring to his apartments remained for three days in solitude, fasting, and reviewing the situation. It must have seemed at first as if the officious knights by their rash action had wrecked his whole policy. The murder was bound to alienate many whose sympathy would otherwise have been with the king. It would put a fresh weapon in the hands of his enemies, and above all, it would practically force the pope into that position of direct antagonism which he had hitherto skilfully contrived to evade to extract himself from his position without complete loss of dignity and surrender of all for which he had fought was a task worthy of henry's diplomatic genius it was necessary to be cautious but prompt for his enemies were losing no time before henry had resumed public life the archbishop of sens legate of france king louis and the count of blois had all written to pope alexander denouncing henry as the murderer and three weeks later the archbishop of sens had proclaimed an interdict upon the king's continental dominions on the strength of a papal letter addressed to himself and the archbishop of rouen ordering such a course to be adopted in the event of the arrest or imprisonment of the archbishop of canterbury against this action the archbishop of rouen and the bishops of worcester evreux and lisieux at once appealed and the interdict was temporarily suspended about the end of january when the appellants and the king's special envoys started for the papal court at frascati news of the murder reached the pope accordingly when richard barr the archdeacons of salisbury and lisieux and the other royal envoys reached frascati they could not at first obtain a hearing and it was generally believed that on monday thursday twenty fifth march the pope would excommunicate henry and lay england under interdict the efforts of the envoys however backed with the powerful argument of english gold averted this danger and the dreaded day brought forth only an excommunication of the actual murderers and their abettors a month later after hearing the appeal of the bishops of worcester and evreux pope alexander confirmed the sentence of interdict published by the archbishop of sens but exempted the king and gave orders for the absolution of the bishops of london and salisbury at the same time he announced his intention of sending legates to henry to settle the terms of his absolution henry meanwhile was preparing to carry into effect the plan which he had had to abandon in eleven fifty five for an invasion of ireland the scheme possessed several attractions to begin with affairs in that island really called for his active interference there was also the advantage that in ireland he would be more completely out of reach of any unwelcome papal messengers than he would be in almost any other spot in the civilized world and finally by undertaking the reform of the irish church which had been urged upon him by pope adrian the fourth 
he would give to his expedition something of the nature of a crusade and would earn the gratitude of the pope prior to eleven sixty six ireland had been practically exempt from english interference and had settled its own affairs by primitive methods of violence resembling their nearest neighbours the welsh in many respects the irish were even more quarrelsome and less advanced in the social scale utterly lacking in political unity their score of kings and princelets acknowledged the theoretical supremacy of their head king or ardri for just so long as he could maintain his position by power of the battle-axe the battle-axe that excellent weapon for quick-tempered men doing its work with complete finality in less time than a man can unsheath sword or notch arrow to bow was the constant companion of the irishman and the arbiter of all his politics by a not unusual combination the irish were at the same time utter barbarians and consummate artists their poetry was of a high standard in music no nation but the welsh could compare with them and in metalwork carving and painting such fragments as have come down to us show a complete mastery of the beauties of line and colour commerce they left to the scandinavian settlers along their seaboard possessing a fertile soil and a favourable climate they lacked the industry and stability for agriculture but grazed great quantities of cattle which served alike for the standard of exchange coined money not being in use and for the objective of raids during their incessant hostilities when st patrick banished the reptiles and vermin it would seem that they must have left their venom and vice behind for the use of the inhabitants of the island for never was there a race so prone to anger so ungrateful and so treacherous and even the miracles recorded of their saints were more often concerned with vengeance wrought upon sacrilegious offenders than with rewards bestowed upon faithful devotees in this race of ishmaelites there was one man of evil preeminence whose hand was against all men and all men's against him dermot mcmurrah king of leinster since the beginning of his reign in eleven twenty one had had even more than his share of fighting his voice had grown hoarse with the shouting of his battle-cry his borders had been enlarged at the expense of his neighbours and the envy and hatred of rival chieftains had been incurred without gaining him the affection of his own subjects in eleven fifty two he had carried off dervergilla the beautiful but middle-aged wife of tiernan o'rourke king of brafna as the lady was well past forty and dermot some ten years older the elopement would seem to have been less a matter of romantic passion than a studied insult to tiernan dermot was speedily forced by turlock o'connor then ardry to give up dervergilla but escaped for the time any serious consequences o'rourke however did not forget and at last in eleven sixty six found an opportunity to head a formidable combination against dermot finding himself isolated dermot seems to have looked to england for help where the chancellor of the irish king came to this country in eleven sixty six and certain irishmen appear to have visited henry's court at woodstock early in the same year no assistance being obtained and resistance being impossible 
Dermot, with some sixty followers, crossed to England and settled for a time at Bristol, under the protection of the wealthy Robert Fitzharding. In the spring of 1167, Dermot crossed to Normandy and had an interview with King Henry. The latter had his hands too full to meddle with Irish affairs. But the opportunity for getting some sort of footing in Ireland which might be useful in the future was too good to be missed. He therefore took Dermot's homage and issued a general license in vague terms, encouraging any of his subjects to assist the exiled king. With this Dermot returned to Bristol, and after vain attempts to obtain assistance in England crossed into Wales, where he succeeded in interesting Richard of Clare, Earl of Pembroke, in his cause. The Earl, whose extravagance had seriously impaired his finances, was attracted by the hope of plunder and broad lands, and by the promise of Dermot's daughter Ava, in marriage with the ultimate prospect of the throne of Leinster. He was, however, too cautious to risk his English and Welsh estates by embarking on this enterprise before he had obtained leave from King Henry. Dermot therefore turned to King Rhys of South Wales, who not only gave him a small force of soldiers but undertook to allow his prisoner, Robert Fitzstephen of Cardigan, to collect troops and cross over to Ireland. At last, Dermot landed in his country once more with a small force, part of which was commanded by Richard Fitzgodebert of Pembrokeshire. After a little fighting, Dermot came to terms with his adversaries and dismissed his mercenaries. For a short time Dermot remained quiet, but about the end of 1168 he dispatched his interpreter, Maurice Reagan, to remind Robert Fitzstephen of his promise and to obtain other assistance. Fitzstephen accordingly crossed to Ireland early in May of 1169. With him came Myler Fitzhenry, grandson of Henry I, and Miles, son of the Bishop of St. David's, Maurice Prendergast, and Hervé de Montmorency, the needy uncle of Earl Richard, and Robert de Barry, a nephew of Fitzstephen, and brother of the historian Gerald. These adventurers landed with some three hundred followers at Banno near Wexford, and here they were welcomed by Dermot and his son Donald Cavanaugh. An assault on Wexford was repelled with loss, but next day the city surrendered and was granted to Fitzstephen. This success was followed by an expedition against the King of Ossory, in which the English, by skilful manoeuvring, drew the Irish out into open ground where they were able to use their cavalry with deadly effect. The flying natives were further punished by an ambuscade of archers, and at the end of the day, two hundred heads were laid before Dermot for that savage king to gloat upon. MacKellan of O'Phalan and O'Toole of Glendalough were defeated and plundered, but Roderick O'Connor the Ardree was able to force Dermot to acknowledge his supremacy and to surrender his son as hostage. Tired of the somewhat unprofitable fighting, Morris Prendergast and his two hundred men proposed to return to Wales, but Dermot refused to let them sail from Wexford. Morris at once transferred his services to the King of Ossory, and assisted his former enemy against his former friends, until such time as he discovered that the jealous men of Ossory were plotting his destruction, when he withdrew his contingent secretly by night to Waterford, and thence crossed into Wales. About the time that Morris Prendergast left Ireland, Morris Fitzgerald, 
a half-brother of Robert Fitzstephen, had landed with some hundred and forty soldiers, and not long afterwards, in the early summer of 1170, the Earl of Pembroke obtained leave from King Henry to undertake the Irish adventure. He first sent a small force under the redoubtable Raymond the Big, who threw up a temporary fort at Dundonnell, where they had hard work to defend themselves. By the ingenious device of driving a herd of cattle before them, the invaders shattered the Irish ranks, and profiting by the confusion, slew many and captured seventy prisoners. By the advice of Hervé de Montmorency, the prisoners were butchered, the business of beheading them being entrusted to a bloodthirsty Welsh girl whose lover had been killed in the battle. Shortly afterwards, Earl Richard landed with Morris Prendergast, Miles de Cogan, and other barons, and fifteen hundred men. Two days later, on 25th August, the attack on Waterford began, and its capture was celebrated by the marriage of the Earl and Ava, daughter of King Dermot. The king and his English allies next marched against Dublin, avoiding the great host assembled against them under the Ardree on Clondalkin Moor. The city was not prepared to offer armed resistance, and the terms of surrender were being discussed between Maurice Reagan, Dermot's representative, and the saintly Archbishop Lawrence O'Toole and Haskolf Torkel's son, the Scandinavian Lord of Dublin, when suddenly, without warning, Miles de Cogan, who had no intention of being deprived of his anticipated loot by the peaceful surrender of the city, raised his war-cry and stormed the walls. Haskolf and such of the inhabitants as were fortunate enough to gain the ships escaped by water, but very many were slain and the city was given over to plunder. Miles was rewarded for his treacherous act by the grant of the custody of the city, while Earl Richard retired to Waterford and Dermot to his capital at Ferns, where on the 1st of January, 1171, he died. By the death of Dermot McMorra, Earl Richard became virtual king of Leinster. But the success of the earl and his companion adventurers was by no means a cause of satisfaction to King Henry, who had no intention of allowing a warlike and independent kingdom to grow up so close to his own realm. He accordingly made his feelings on this subject obvious by seizing the Earl of Pembroke's English estates, and the Earl hastened to clear himself from the charge of disloyalty by sending his lieutenant, Raymond the Big, to place all his conquests at the king's disposal. Henry, who had gone so far as to forbid the sending of any assistance in men or munitions to Ireland, and to order the immediate return of the adventurers on pain of perpetual banishment, was not appeased, though he determined to profit by the earl's submission. Raymond seems to have returned to his lord with an order for the latter's personal appearance before the king. Matters, however, were too involved to permit of Earl Richard's immediate departure. Under pressure from Archbishop Lawrence O'Toole, O'Connor had summoned a great force for the siege of Dublin, and all the native chiefs had rallied round him, glad of an opportunity of revenging the wrongs they had suffered at the hands of the foreign invaders. Provisions soon began to fail in the city, and an attempt to come to terms having failed, the Ardree, 
insisting upon the surrender of all the conquered territory except the three towns of dublin waterford and wexford the only course open was to risk all in an attack upon the besieging host the attempt might well seem desperate in view of the disparity of numbers but its very boldness proved its salvation leaving a small garrison to guard the city some six hundred picked men marched out in three columns under miles de cogan raymond the big and the earl himself the surprise was completely successful secure in the knowledge of their numbers the irish had neglected outposts or guards and were caught quite unprepared many of them were actually bathing when the english cavalry dashed into their camp discouraged by this severe defeat in which they lost very heavily the irish forces broke up and drifted away earl richard was now free to attempt the relief of robert fitzstephen who after dangerously depleting his own forces to strengthen the garrison of dublin had been gallantly standing a siege in his castle of carrick near wexford the earl's forces after a desperate action in the pass of odrone in which myler fitzhenry particularly distinguished himself reached wexford to find the town in flames carrick castle fallen and fitzstephen a prisoner the earl now turned to waterford and prepared for an expedition against macdona king of ossory but the latter offered to come in and make terms if his old ally morris prendergast would obtain him a safe conduct this morris did but when macdona came before the earl king o'brien of munster who was acting at this time with the english urged his arrest and execution and it was only by the vigorous action of prendergast who brought his men-at-arms on the scene that the barons were prevented from thus treacherously breaking their oaths end of section ten